the quantum mechanics. Yes, we are the quantum mechanics with the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. And Ben, I've uh, I've been thinking a lot about the uh, Twenty Seven Club over the last week. It's made me listen to a lot of music, which has been really nice. So, just before I've uh, came to record here, I've been listening quite loudly to David Bowie's Station to Station album, which I hadn't heard for a while. And oh, that is a good album. It made me. Th- it made me think. Yeah, what would those other artists that we talked about last week have done if they'd have got past the age of 27? Well, that's true. I'm pretty sure, like, I do adore Kurt Cobain, as most people do, but I'm pretty sure he'd probably be presenting an eight-parter on Sky Arts now, don't, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe. Or he'd have he'd, he'd, he'd decided to get into jazz funk, which would have really screwed Oh, God, imagine up. if he got together with JK and they'd done some sort of horrible oh. Jamiroquai Nirvana. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's not, let's not dispir- dismirch his name any further. Oh, yes, it smells uh, like Teen Spirit. No, no, no. <laughs> so, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm in a good mood today after listening to David Bowie's. So I'm looking good. forward to today. Good. Well... Let me let me enhance your good mood by talking to you about poltergeists. Um, oh, excellent. <laughs> because poltergeists cheer everyone up, right? So um, a bit like my werewolf kind of fascination, I have a, a regard for poltergeist cases because I think they are some of the most enigmatic and intriguing and arguably the most seminal of all the poltergeist cases of modern times is the Enfield poltergeist. Pretty much everybody oh, course, has yeah. heard of the Enfield poltergeist. And if you haven't, it is likely that you will have seen a story or a film which in some way derives some of its narrative from the core elements of this story. Uh, I'm not going to go into the actual story itself. I will give you a little brief pricey, but... I picked up a couple of weeks ago a book called The Enfield Poltergeist Tapes by an author called Dr. Melvin Willin. And it I hadn't appreciated that uh, I, I realised that the Society for Psychical Research had done a huge investigation on this case. Indeed, um, the key sort of protagonist that you see in um, a lot of the films and particularly the, uh, the ones which uh, tell sort of the true story if you like of the the haunting um uh, so the characters like the, the sky one there was the a sky, sky one yeah that uh, was that that the, that main guy was in it wasn't he from the psycho yes psychological Ma- maurice maurice gross and uh guy lion playfair yeah. yeah so they're yeah. both um represented in this but both of those guys they took extensive audio recordings and those became the property of the Society for Psychical Research and stored in the archives at Cambridge University. And what Dr. Melvin Willin has done in this book is essentially transcribed every single tape that is in that archive, laid it out in this book, and has a la- it, what he is doing is encouraging the reader to draw their own conclusions about what is going on because a lot of the other books about this have been either written to debunk or have been written to be pro the supernatural side of it 
And so I've been going through this and drawing out some of the key moments. But before we get into that, let us just remember what this is about. So this all centres around the house at 284 Green Street, which is a council house in Brimsdown Enfield, which is in London. And it takes place between 1977 and 1979. And the two sort of key players in this are two sisters, aged 11 and 14. And that is obviously something that we know about poltergeist cases. Uh, young children, very specifically younger girls who are sort of on that cusp of puberty, seem to attract this phenomena. That's something that we we know not only through sort of contemporary uh, stories, but also in terms of legends, even things like classical stories like Wuthering Heights. There are elements of this. There is sort of the coming of age younger woman and then there are mysterious things happening around them. This right. particular case, as um, we've spoken about with things like the uh, the Highgate Vampire, there are, the British newspapers get involved pretty quickly. And in August 1977, we have the case where Peggy Hodgson, who is the mother of these two girls... She calls the police to this house. So it's it's rented, as I said, it's a council house. And she tells the police that she has seen furniture moving and that she's seen uh, and uh, she's heard knocking noises and furniture moving. That bit's, that bit's done quite well in The Conjuring 2, isn't it? Which is based on the Enfield poltergeist. There's a great bit where the police turn up <laughs> and they're in the house and they leave the thing moving around and they just you just see them leaving going we can't help you with this bye <laughs> that's exactly gone. right yes and i think that is what gives this case its initial credibility because this is on the this is on the very verge of the newspapers getting involved so august 1977 is we're talking about 15 to 20 days before this case explodes and Maurice Gross and Guy Lyon Playfair get involved. But over the course of the next 18 months, more than 30 people get involved in this. And it isn't just newspaper reporters and psychical researchers who get involved. We have, as, as we say, we have the police, we have authors, we have people from the BBC turning up. And what we tend to get is the accounts written um, in their own terms. And what we also know from watching things like, you know, it, line of duty, but we know it, that people's memories um, can, be, can be changed and people's yep. view of things can be distorted. And although it is really good to have a lot of accounts where people tend to agree on what was going on, it is difficult to take an unbiased approach to a case like this unless you get back to original source material. And that is what this book has done. That's fascinating. What a good, I mean, that is a really clear way of looking at it because we've talked about that a lot, haven't we? How, um, how things get, I don't know, hyped up or people have got agendas or like you said, people just don't remember things 
the way that they were or embellish them slightly subconsciously. So going back to the source is such a great idea. That's right. And you don't know people's agendas, whereas an audio recording, as it is stored there, we are in a period like 1977, we're in a period before there was digital uh, recording and therefore manipulation of tapes. So what we've got are original tapes that are on reel-to-reel uh, and sometimes uh, audio cassette, so a couple of different mediums. Uh, if you oh, hadn't thought of that, pardon the pun. But Ooh, the idea right. is that the only way that one could uh, edit a tape in those days is either to do a splice. So this is when I first started in radio. This is what you had to do. You you literally, on a, on a big reel-to-reel device, you found the piece of audio that you wanted to edit or extract. You marked it with chalk. Then you cut it out with a razor blade and then you stitch the two pieces together using a, a piece of white scotch tape. That's how you did it. And the skill was how clever you were at being able to find the right point. So you would have your edit point right over the playhead so you could get it completely correct. And that is the way that people did editing right up until you know the mid to late 90s. And the only other way that you could change something on a tape is to you know, almost do like a, an audio drama. So you would have to do live uh, acoustics. You'd, you'd have to make things happen live, like a play, right? So yep. we can be sure that we know that these tapes in this archive are as original as we can be be as sure as we can about. It's not impossible that somebody did do those edits and transfer them, but we do trust the Society for Psychical Research, and we do trust the uh, the chain of ownership from uh, when they were made into this archive at Cambridge University. So I think... And, and also, it would show a hell of a lot of kind of hindsight or, or insight to go, let's edit them now. <laughs> so in future, it looks like the story's a certain way. Do you know what I mean? There would, there would be no point in editing them at that point, no. right, that they went into that story. And... And before we get into this, we just also have to look at the two key contributors to this. So Maurice Gross and Guy Lyon Playfair. Now, in the Sky adaptation, Guy Lyon Playfair is sort of the um, the cool guy, if you like. He drives a sports car, is tall and slim, is a bit of a, I suppose, a ladies' man. And by all accounts, that is true. And he did write a very famous book off the back of this called This House is Haunted. And you could say, if if you were following what we always say, which is <clears throat> follow the money, follow where the benefit goes, you could say that he has benefited from this more than Maurice Gross, really. But to do that, like in his book, This House is Haunted, you can tell from the title he has got a bit of an agenda there. But I think what he's trying to do is is say, like, my belief from what I've seen is that this is true. But I think this is sort of what this book, The Enfield Poltergeist Tapes, is trying to um, sort of take a middle ground on. So obviously he's saying, yeah, I think this is right. But there are many, many other people who had a problem with what they saw. Not least, there was um, a famous investigator called Anita Gregory and her uh, investigative partner, John Beloff, 
and they were they described themselves as being underwhelmed from what they saw. So that's interesting. I thought, well, let's let's get into these tapes and see what they have to say. I've got one question before you you quickly go in there. I mean, yeah. you mentioned Mor- Morris as well, who yeah. As you as you described in the certainly in the Sky film, which feels like it's um, compared to the Conjuring Two, is a bit kind of closer, or, or lays it out in a bit more of a closer way to what happened. I mean, Morris comes across as if he's purely doing it for the investigation, and he's into the subject. And I don't know if it's just the way he's cast or portrayed in it that he's not really gaining any financial or publicity benefit out of it. Is, is that true? Do you know if he went on to write books and do various bits and pieces? Is he is he one we need to follow the money with as well? Uh, I he guess it's did, a question. He, he did do bits and pieces, but by no means was it the career enhancer for him as right. it was for Guy Playfair. Um, right. like, and, but I don't think, like I say... I'm going to argue that I don't think that that means that we have to discount his testimonies. Sadly, Guy Lyon Playfair died quite recently, but it led him to do a whole load of work sort of inspired by this. Well, not even sort of, directly inspired by this, but had by no means uh, the sort of the fiscal success that the book This House is Haunted had. And there is no back channels of money between he didn't get a huge publishing advance and stuff unlike something right. where you could you can very easily uncover some of the un, the goings on around like the amateurville horror for example where you can you know the, there are records of publishing deals and contracts being signed that mean that you know you can call into question that story whereas that isn't the case here what we're talking about is a researcher who i think is writing a book in good faith he actually went on to do a lot of research about um the sounds that poltergeists make and he'd done a lot of scientific research looking at the audio patterns of those sounds completely inspired initially by this case and like i don't think one would waste one's time and resources because he certainly didn't make a packet out of that investigative route if if he wasn't if he wasn't convinced but in in their initial logging of kind of these tapes and then a report that they uh that they give which are again stored at edinburgh university there are 16 key elements which were observed in this case and Playfair and Gross between them saw all of them bar three. So the things that are recorded, I'll just quickly whip through them because it'll make sense when you hear okay. some of the, the stories from the tapes. So uh, percussive sounds, that is one of them. So rappings um, and shakings, that sort of thing. Uh, throwing yep. the small objects. So the Lego brick, I think, is incredibly famous, largely because that is what was reported by the police who came on that first visit. Movement of yep. furniture, beds, sideboards, that sort of thing, um, all pretty um, well known in this case, I think. Opening and closing of doors and drawers, interference with bed clothing. So that is very specific to the girls' bedrooms and much more specific 
uh, that they share a bedroom, I should say. So it's much more specific to Margaret's bed, that one. Yep. Um, appearance of liquid and solid substances. So pools of water are a big thing here. Um, apparitions, both partial and total, and we'll come on to that because that is one of the most fascinating things. Um, levitations of persons, physical assaults, so people feeling like they were punched or kicked. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like this one, presumed passage of matter through matter. And there's a brilliant story of this. So, so what they mean is without any obvious like open window, something goes from the inside of the house to the outside of the house that seems impossible. Um, psychological disturbance, yeah, I mean... Is that paranormal? It's it's a feature, isn't it? Automatic writing and drawing, yeah. automatic speech, disembodied voices, I'd argue those two are the same, equipment failure and outbreaks of fire. Now, out of all of those, Gross and Playfair claim to have uh, witnessed all of them except for the apparition. So that is yeah. something reported by a third party, and we'll get onto that. Um, yeah. Physical assaults, they claim they never saw that. And they also said they never saw the presumed passage of matter through matter. But everything else, they wow. say they they came across. And as you're talking about it, I, I have that picture in my mind. There's a very famous photograph, isn't there? Of I think it's set. It's in the girl's bedroom. Of one it's of Margaret them being of, thrown across the room. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think one of them's kind of screaming, and one's being thrown across the room. It, it's an incredible image that yes and she's she's in her night things and this is supposedly something that the poltergeists did it it picked her up and physically threw her across the room right so if we start with these tapes so these are sort of collectively known unimaginatively as the Maurice Gross Guy Lion Playfair tapes that's how they're stored um in the archives and the very first tape recording from them starts just after 10 p.m. on the 19th of September, 1977. And funnily enough, this is the the very first thing that happens on the tape is a piece of Lego being thrown. And so I think this is something that has sort of um, become like a key part of this story. It was in the Sky dramatization people that i have spoken to have mentioned oh yeah didn't they have lego thrown at them because it was also mentioned by the police so this is this is something that comes up in that very very first tape but interestingly in that tape of that day there are lots of other creaks and miscellaneous noises but um they both both of the parties, um, Gross and Playfair, narrate on the tape that they think that this is just caused by normal household activity. Okay. Um, the only other so no, nothing paranormal they're saying. That. No, no, nothing paranormal. Right. The only other thing that Playfair notes is that a chair had turned over, but it was in a different room and he didn't see it. So that is basically the first night of of recording. It's basically a piece of Lego a chair falling over in a different room and some creaks and noises from general household activity. What's quite interesting about that, though, it does does add to their credibility, I think. Yes. Because it would have been very easy for them to 
ham that up into something, you know, even if they didn't see it or the creaks and noises. So I, I think that I that I think that's quite encouraging that they're going, yeah, it's just probably normal household noises. They're not going in there with this right, we're gonna make it so, you know what I mean? No. We're make it this paranormal thing. And when yeah. when one reads some of the the other accounts where we get into, you know, things being thrown most most books and some sort of dramatizations turn their attention to well is this is this margaret uh you know is this a child in the house that is doing this and like at the like i say this is just an audio tape so none of that is being considered but it's crucial that within that narration there is no suspicion coming up there it's a suspicion that one would add afterwards going well hang on there's two there's two playful girls here it seems to be surrounding them did they not throw the lego and i think that's why this is quite it's quite interesting to sort of see it firsthand now that's the the skeptic that's the skeptic side of this story isn't it that it was the girls kind of egged on by the mother who was enjoying the kind of attention yes and that's the skeptic side of it isn't it yes and and i think uh, i will invite you to come with me on the journey where i think there might be a third a third way to explain uh this but we'll we'll get there so throughout um these these tapes are made you know regularly so throughout october we do get various things um happening we get furniture turning over uh, turning over by itself we get bedroom objects flying around but it isn't really until the 28th of november where we get sort of something which it feels like the activity is picking up and from the transcript it sounds like maurice and gross are finding this more intriguing than other things they've seen so uh, there is a, a brush being thrown, a hairbrush. Um, the settee turns over backwards and the fridge door is thrown open so violently that it leaves a dent in the door. So that is that is the first time we come across something where there is, you know, a, I wouldn't say at this point you can say that's a supernatural power, but like bearing in mind the oldest child in this case is 14 and there were adults in the room at the time this happened if somebody opens a fridge door so violently that it dents it is relatively obvious that someone is opening the fridge door violently mm. like it, it, it's not something that you can do by accident or avoid um you know avoid drawing attention to if you see what i mean um and this is there's also a key turning point in the story here so as bedtime comes around janet she's the 14 year old she starts to get emotional and she starts crying and she starts biting gross's jacket so she's sort of becoming there's a slight animalistic thing here and this is the first time that she swears 
and this has never happened in this case before and um i'm not gonna like the book itself is also careful with the expletives because um otherwise it just gets dull and and the voice which eventually comes out of janet it it just would make this podcast unlistenable to let alone unmakeable but it's worth pointing out this 14 year old girl who is generally quiet in demeanor shouts at gross you're fucking hurting me and then during the night she was thrown out of bed several times and that was in apparent response to gross trying to demand the expulsion of whatever was affecting her. So this is the first time where we get a direct cause and effect between um, one of the investigators pushing what he now believes to be a, a, a habitation of the girl by some sort of external force and her reacting very unlike her normal sort of, if you like, human self. It feels like this is the beginning of... A possession yeah and he's trying to do almost a, a layman's exorcism mm. that's right now sorry was that was that morris who's that was that? morris yes. yes yeah yeah so we now sort of move on to december 1977 and this is a period of intense recording aside from christmas day boxing day and new year's eve there wasn't really a day when Morris and or Playfair didn't visit the Hodgson household and make extensive recordings. And one of the key things that happens very early in the month is Janet appearing to be genuinely very upset by a door opening and closing by itself when she was alone and then being thrown up the stairs. So... This is the first time outside of her bedroom where she feels that she is being directly... This is the first time where at least she tells the researchers on tape where that she feels that she's being sort of directly targeted by this force and um, being scared by the movement of this door in the house and then being thrown up the stairs. And then... When we get to the 10th of December, and this this is crucial because this happens at 6.35, and the mother says things tend to happen for some reason at 25 to the hour, there is a growling voice heard near Janet. And this is the beginning of what is known as the voice. This growling noise in amongst... Um, there is some screaming and there is some jumping out of bed and gross is there and janet starts barking like a dog and so joe gross takes this opportunity and asks for his name to be said out loud and he's quite short-tempered with janet as she just sort of makes these barking noises and and this this reference to dogs comes up later which is fascinating so keep that in your head and eventually his name is said but is followed by a whole barrel of expletives but the voice that comes out is so far away from being that of a 14 year old girl it takes everyone aback um, we've got a recording of that now just have a listen to this 
Let me hear you say my name. Come on, let me hear you say my name. Squeak the bed, I can't hear you talking. Now, say Dr. Bellon. Come on. Come on, say it for me, Dr. Bellon. I mean, it is. It is eerie, isn't it? Really well, eerie. I don't know. I don't really know how how it would be possible to make that noise owning yeah. the voice box of a young girl i really don't yeah. but i'm i'm not pushing this either way or suggesting anything just yet but what is interesting is the um the way that it reacts to gross and so whether it is janet or the voice you know there is a possession coming through her it's intriguing that it is in some ways complicit because it does what he wants but in some ways is also vicious against it with um there is an outpouring of swearing it sort of carries on playfully barking at him it's almost it's taking a mickey in some ways right but this uh, sorry and and be- previous to this on the tapes has there been any I'm just trying to think of this from a skeptic's point of view. Is there any indication that either consciously or subconsciously that Gross and Playfair may have been, I don't know, leading them into performing or doing something like that? No, no, this comes this no, comes no. completely out of the blue. This right. growling noise is is completely new. Nobody is expecting it. Nobody is suggesting it. And I get what you're saying. There is at no point anybody who is leading Janet on to say, you know, for example, if you're possessing Janet, come out and speak to me or let me speak to Janet. You know, like that bit with um, Bill Murray in Ghostbusters where, (laughs) yeah, yeah, he's like, can I, can I speak to Dana? There is no Dana only Zul. That, that isn't a thing it's this that isn't part of it yeah no and what is also interesting is the growling noise and we sort of see this later on but there's a there's a there's a reason why it says a growling voice heard near janet because it appears to come not from janet that's the intriguing thing even though she is the only protagonist in that position you know that could be making it if we rule out a paranormal form. So she would have to be not only 
a great mimic, but uh, almost a ventriloquist as well to pull both of that off, right? Well, I think if one was taking a hardline view on this, one would say, how do you know it didn't come? You know, how do you know it was from near Janet rather than from her? Yeah. And and it's a very subjective thing, isn't it? Because um, we all, you know, like we all get tricked by our own senses. And so I don't think one can put a whole, one can't base a theory on that. But I do think it's interesting that it wasn't Janet said this or Janet made this noise. It was a, a voice near Janet. And it could be, I think it's worth saying, it could be that if you hear the noise that we've all just heard coming out of a 14-year-old girl, I keep saying it, but if you hear that noise coming out of her, your brain might be doing somersaults and not assign it to her voice. You're thinking, well, this is coming yeah, from yeah. somewhere else. So yeah. I think that is worth yeah. you know, bearing in mind. Yeah. But Gross goes on in the future to uh, do this sort of cross-examination of the voice. But what is really fascinating is how absent or confusing the responses are and they refer to this as the voice because it doesn't introduce itself for a while but when it does the first sort of interaction where it gives a name he well it but let's say he he introduces himself as bill wilkinson he refuses to give his age but he says he lived in the house so the house where the hodgson's are yeah and he says he was married with three children, but won't name them. He then goes into a huge barrage of swearing. And, like, it's not just the F word. It's it's like, um, it's, it's a barrage of obscenities, basically. Yeah. Then, Gross sort of ignores it and says, he asks him directly, how do you do your tricks? And then recorded on the tape is a whole load of beds creaking and girls laughter. And then like, and this is one of the strangest moments I think in all the tapes, the voice says that it steals money from the shop and it has a dog present called Goober the ghost. And then Bill says his age is 72 and that his children are 16 and 18. And then it goes on <laughs> to say that it wants Janet out of the bed and it, and I quote, and likes living in the house. So Gross then continues. He, he thinks he's onto something here. Yeah, he's got something here. And he asks some more questions. And every time he asks a subsequent question... He either gets no reply or gets told to F off. That is the only reply he gets. So he gets this strange reply about stealing money and a dog called Goober. Which and, is bizarre. Which is absolutely bizarre. There is Did you say a ghost dog called Goober? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is well it's called he calls it he calls it Goober the Ghost. Um in a subsequent interrogation of the voice. 
for no reason that I can specifically find, because there isn't a great reason as to why, in the uh, in the, uh, the sort of the continuation narrative of the tapes, but um, uh, Guy Lyon Playfair asks the voice about jazz music. As I say, not sure why. Right. Um, and the voice replies saying scarlet fever and then on the tape there is a lot of girls laughter and so that is clearly you know the two girls and then yeah. there is more fake barking and woofing like we first heard in that clip it, it seems to be the same thing and then gross has this idea that maybe he can get the voice to sing at the same time as Janet so that he would get both voices on tape at the same time. So he... Uh, sorry, what, what date was this with the reference? Uh, we're, the... We're, we're still in December. We're still in December 77. 77. Yeah. So there was an album called Scarlet Fever by right. Jazz Band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, About that time, I think. Yeah, and and this reference to modern culture of the time, contemporary culture, I should say, keeps coming through in a really strange way, and we'll we'll get onto that in just a second. Okay. So G Gross and Playfair initiate this uh, potential sing along with Janet and the Voice. They encourage it. And they suggest right. maybe you should sing Daisy Daisy or Frere Jacques or Oranges and Lemons. And the voice of Janet, they won't sing together. They don't capture them singing together. They capture little bits of each of them doing a little bit sort of half-heartedly. But at no time is there a time when the voice and Janet are both doing it. Now... That doesn't mean that either are making it up. I think what they're trying to do is reference back to that past point where the voice is coming from somewhere other than Janet. That's how it sounds to them. They're trying yeah. to see if they can make a disembodied voice sing along with Janet and presumably, in their mind, rule out Janet as the particular cause. Because if you if it's coming from Janet's voice box then really you sort of have to get medical in terms of disproving that Janet can make that, make that voice. Yeah. I think that's kind of where they're coming from, but they don't, they don't do it. Yeah. Um, now in this, um, not very, uh, successful sing song, the voice is swearing a lot. He, he, he is just like, he just becomes completely, I don't know, sort of um, hostile. But he keeps dropping in peculiar phrases. So he says, I have 58 dogs to protect me. And then he says, I am Bill Hay Haylock and I didn't die. And he also peculiarly demands that Gross and Playfair must stay outside to keep out all the germs. Um, which is something sort of uh, fairly redolent to today's times. But um, yeah. I think that's that's weird. And then 
he goes on to say his first and longest coherent sentence. So unprompted, he says, I'm 72 years, years old. I come from the graveyard at Durrance Park and all my friends, we go to the pub and I used to live here. When I was alive, I suffered from blindness and I never had a dog. I died from a hemorrhage. I'm Bill Wilkinson and I died 15 years ago and my wife died four years ago. is the most coherent set of information they get at this time and then and i'm assuming they checked out that information did they do we know well well we'll get onto that but i can reveal that okay. but bill wilkinson absolutely did live in the house and did die of a hemorrhage on a chair mm. downstairs that is that is true right I, I seem to remember something about the chair in the film as well. Yes. In the Sky film. Yes. Yeah. So, and he did lose his sight. Wow. Um, but I will say from the other side of things, it is possible that Janet knew that because that's how they achieved yeah. this council house. You don't get a council house without somebody clearing yeah. a council house. And yeah. even if she wasn't told it directly, she's 14, you know, 14-year-old yeah, kids are not dumb. People talk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it is absolutely within the realms of possibility that she knew that. But I've got a, I've got a question at this point. Just, uh, yeah. just a, a general one about the tapes. And again, thinking about it from a sceptic's point of view, every time they're recalled, does something happen? Or, like what percentage no. of these recordings are are weird paranormal versus just mundane and nothing happening uh i i can't tell you a percentage but it's relatively low like i'm pulling out so so the book pulls out the key ones and i've pulled yeah. out a subset of those and yeah i am cantering through december with just the key things because other moments are just you know mundane mundane there is yeah you do get like stuff turning over or the girls claiming to have been thrown out of bed or the voice telling somebody you know in no uncertain terms to get lost but it there was no sort of great um acceleration in knowledge of the case is probably the best way to put it yeah and uh, you can see where i'm going with that question that if the girls are doing it themselves there would be a pressure to do something every time they were being recorded i yes. would imagine 
Yes. And that is something that a lot of authors have pulled, have sort of drawn out. Like if, if you're, if you go and investigate something because you believe there's a poltergeist there and you've only got one night there, you're not going to go away with a positive view unless something happens. And it does appear, and it is true that when investigators come in quite a lot of the time, they do get given something, whether it be, you know, the girls getting upset in the night or the ubiquitous Lego brick or some furniture falling over something like that happens. But, um, we do, we do hear in a minute that if we say, if we call the voice bill, he does not appreciate being a performing monkey. That is something that comes out. Um, what is interesting from these tapes and like gets lost from the films for reasons you will see that it is obvious after he talks about, you know, he gives this brief pricey of his life story and where he is. He then goes back to talking about really peculiar offbeat stuff. And he, I've edited this quite highly because he goes on to talk about like basically sexually orientated stuff. So he starts talking about bras and knickers and he says those things that you use and um, he talks about, he, he asks, um, it's not clear to me which one, but he asks Morris or a uh, guy to take off their trousers and he then asks basically about the birds and the bees and he asks why women give birth through their bottoms this is like you know in the transcripts and what is sort of fascinating is that um the investigators kind of answer his questions as if they were coaching a young child who was asking about the birds and the bees and the language that the voice is using is incredibly childish and it is full of like he he calls men's genitalia a tinkle for example so it's really like childish stuff but at the same time he's using massively obscene language and this is the first time when i was reading these transcripts that i thought okay so there's one way of reading this, which is, you know, there's, you could say that Janet, presumably aided by the mother and at least her sister, is has found a way somehow of imitating a 72-year-old man in her voice because there is no arguing that that is what she sounds like. We've heard, we've heard the audio. And she's got enough knowledge that she can say a few things that make people feel slightly impressed. And that is making people believe, you know, the story that there is something possessing her. On the other hand, if you were some kind of lower level spirit, some kind of, I'm not going to say demon, because I was always saying, I think demon has a lot of uh, sort of Catholic and religious overtones. 
But if we say that there is, let's say, a playful spirit who's doing this, then I think it's perfectly legitimate that it might use obscene terms and then find it very, very funny to use these incredibly childish terms and embarrass the people who are investigating by asking, you know, questions about where children come from. That is, you know, that is something that it feels like it isn't beyond the realms of possibility to do. Being mischievous, you mean? Yes, being mischievous. And then in at the end of this quite long conversation, he he then goes on to for example confirm that now he has three children mandy wendy and george 12 14 18 he then confirms his name and address he gives the full address of the house where they're at and then for some reason he says i'm a naked man we don't know why he says that and then he says his best friend is david with brown hair and blue eyes and then uh there is a conversation where they try and um take him to into talking about religious aspects so they ask bill about god and bill says um he does know god and he's a good friend and a kind man mm-hmm. and that is that is that one that one session but that session quickly progresses so the following day so we're now the latter part of december uh morris gross's son turns up now he has got more uh sort of credentials he is much more used to interviewing people he has a professional career where he has to do this and he sets up this session where it is just him and janet in a room together with the tape and this is the most coherent that the voice ever comes through. It's not very long, but um, it goes like this. And I think this is this is obviously a turning point in the tale. I want you to tell me whether you remember what happened to you when you died. Just before you died and just after you died. So he he asks the voice who he is and what happened. And the voice, we're going to assume it's Bill, says, this is word for word, just before I died, I went blind. Then I had a hemorrhage and I fell asleep and I died in the chair in the corner downstairs. And so Richard says, when you had the hemorrhage, were you in hospital? Bill says, no, no. Richard says, where were you then, Bill? Bill says, at home in the chair. Richard says, what does it feel like when you died? I cried and cried and wanted to come back and see my wife. And could you have come back to see your wife? If she was alive, I could. Uh, Richard says, Paul is holding a letter of the alphabet in his hand. Can you be very clever and tell us what is on it? Bill says, later on. Why can't you tell us now? He's a fucking swine. 
Who is? Dead. Where's your wife, Bill? Bill says, dead in the grave. Why aren't you with her? Because I come back again. Why hasn't she come back again? Because it's different. She's a woman, I'm a man. Richard says, Bill, I don't believe that. Bill says, well, I fucking well do. And then um, it ends basically with uh, Bill sort of going off into obscenities and not asking anything um, specific. But later on, just before the session closes down, he makes this one statement. He says, um, I'm 72 years old. I have three children, Mandy, Wendy and Henry. Again, different names. Mandy is 12, Wendy is 16, and Jeffrey is 17, right? So completely contradictory. I come from Dewar's Park, which is very similar, but not exactly the same as the name of the cemetery he said he comes, comes from. And then bizarrely, he says, I have 10 dogs who chase 68 men. I used to go to school at the top of the road about 68 years ago and had many friends, especially Joe. Now, when I was reading that, it made me think of Jeff the Talking Mongoose because yeah. that is very similar to what we found out from the Christopher Joseph book about Jeff, where he says things which appear to be true and then are also contradictory and sometimes are not true. Yeah. And, and that kind of almost silly, playful to it like the dogs and the you know that stuff is that's very jeff like i think it's incredibly jeff like yes the fact that he's um yes i think you you're absolutely right the fact that um he says i have 10 dogs who chase 68 men it's it's meaningless yeah. and a ridiculous statement at the same time comedic yeah um yeah. later on we go into so this is um the beginning of 1978 this this bit is quite short but um he comes out this voice we're going to call him bill again he starts um speaking in different languages he claims he can do french and german but it's not very good and when one of the investigators asks him to do a different language he kind of doesn't bite on it but he does begin to sing in italian and <laughs> although it's accurate it's not very good and it's described by um on the tape as being like monotone and half spoken but then they discover the what what he's singing is is a song by max bygraves that is on a, a record that one of janet's friends owns right interesting and in the same session and this this is played out in a number of the films because it is one of the most um classic it's when gross gets the idea of asking janet to fill her mouth with water and then speak or sing when her mouth is full of water and she tries and she has a few false starts uh, where she either spits out or swallows it, but she never she never does it. She never manages to come out with anything while her mouth is full of water. Again, I don't, I'm not sure what that proves. I think what Gross was trying to do was to either... I think he was hoping that if she could do that, 
it would, that would again be a slam dunk, wouldn't it? It would be yeah, exactly. You'd have your smoking gun. But as she can't, it doesn't if you're it a spirit disprove. it no, absolutely. If you're a spirit who has possessed her voice box, a, the voice box is a physical thing. It can't work yeah. when your mouth is full of water. It just can't. And so I don't I don't think it proves anything other than that the the source of the the uh both the voice and uh, like all the noises that are vocal are coming coming out of janet's mouth that is appears to yeah. be what it proves yeah um and then like towards the end of this we get to like uh we're sort of april 1978 now and i love this account so this is um from a, a tradesman who was passing by the house in 1977. And this is where we get our first um, sort of evidence of material passing through other material. If you remember, that was one of the key things that the investigators said. And yeah. this is, again, this is very, oh, it's a Jeff-like story. It's not massively long, but listen, listen to this. So this took place, he's giving the account in um, April 78, but this takes place in December 77. He says, as a local tradesman doing my deliveries in Green Street, Enfield, I noticed a red cushion on the roof of number 284. At the time, I was between one and 200 yards away from the house. One moment when I looked, there was no cushion on the roof, and the next moment, the cushion was on the roof. It just seemed to appear on the edge of the roof. As far as I was aware, the windows of the bedroom upstairs were closed and they opened outwards. I don't think it was possible for the cushion to be thrown onto the roof. On arriving outside number 284, as I served the people next door in 286, there was something very strange going on in the bedroom of 284. The family in number 284 are not customers of mine and I only know the family by sight. Normally, I would have just served the customer in number 286 and then I would immediately have left. But on this particular day, I stood outside the house as there was a considerable amount of noise coming from the bedroom in number 284. There was loud knockings and banging noises coming from that bedroom. And that that is pretty much the the full account that we get from him. Yeah. But this is somebody unconnected with the case. To be fair... It does state that he knew about the case because of all of the media attention, but um, the, he is not, you know, he's not an investigator. He's not writing a book. He's yeah, a tradesperson yeah. delivering next door. And it's such a peculiar thing to come out with this red cushion, which appears out of nowhere on the roof. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, again, if you're, if you're going to make something up, you'd, you'd almost go, Oh, I saw a haunted, face at the window you know what i mean it's that kind, it's it's quite a mundane thing to describe isn't it I think. it's yes it's massively mundane yes and this sort of i think this mundane aspect of it this this sort of way that um sometimes the voice gives you very intriguing things like the actual name of the man who died but then can't give you any corroborating evidence. I think this is where the rub of this story lies. And it doesn't just remind me of um, Jeff. It reminds me of a book that I read when it first came out in 1990 and then I reread when it was reissued in 2001. 
It's called The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts. And I think there are a number of similarities between the two. So just to give you a brief overview, and when I do, I think you'll see where I'm going to with this case. Um, It's written by an author called Joe Fisher, who is um, by nature, he was an investigative um, author. Um, Very sadly, he committed suicide in 2001 in Canada. And we won't go into the reasons about that. They appear to have been financially related. But he wrote this book um, in the late 80s and then reissued it in the early 2000s when he was um, uh, 53 years old. And what it does is kind of address the notion of why should we believe paranormal claimants because they're so sincere. So it's a very thick book, but basically what he does is he gets involved via a friend with a medium who is suffering from leukemia and she doesn't know she's a medium she starts going through this hypnotic therapy and after a while this alter consciousness starts coming through while she's in a trance state and it gives these deep discourses on like metaphysical topics the world beyond reincarnation all that kind of stuff that you might expect a voice from somewhere else to talk of. And then seemingly from nowhere, the medium's spirit guide in inverted commas comes through. And he says he's a 19th century Yorkshire sheep farmer called Russell Parnick. And as this happens, um, people kind of get wind of this and more and more people turn up to these sessions. And the, the medium herself Uh, although she wouldn't necessarily call herself a medium uh she sort of decides she doesn't want to know what's going on um and so she doesn't learn of anything that she is saying or doing um but the author learns that he has got a spirit guide called philippa and that the two of them had an affair a relationship in a greek village in uh the 18th century and over the months of him having these conversations via the medium he becomes so enthralled with what he's hearing so convinced that this is true he actually dumps his real life girlfriend to spend all of his time talking to and thinking about this woman who he believes he had this incredible relationship with past life relationship a past life relationship and then the investigative reporter in him sort of takes over and so he takes a great interest in uh one of the voices that comes through who calls himself ernest scott and he said he had a recent incarnation as an raf bomber pilot and so the author goes to England to see what he could discover because this Ernest Scott has given him a lot of information about his background, the squadron, the aerodrome with which he um, worked out of, and even the accommodation where he had to stay, which he claims was a converted sports stadium. Now, when he gets there, he finds that there are parts of this story that add up 
but there are enormous parts that don't and it actually doesn't make sense and there is no record of this Ernest Scott right but not to give up he then checks out Russell's village in Yorkshire and again things more or less checked out but crucial details were wrong and not just wrong incredibly wrong absolutely contradictorily wrong and there was no record of a russell parnick and then finally he travels to greece to find philippa and the village that they lived in and not only is he unable to confirm the story he can confirm it is plainly untrue because this village didn't exist there is literally no um record of any of the people with her surname and it's only the 18th century things don't disappear in time that much and he finds himself completely devastated and draws this conclusion that he is being like these spirit guides they are not they don't have his best interests at heart they have caused him severe problems they've ruined his relationship they've made him spend a whole load of money uh, out of his own pocket traveling to europe from canada and when he confronts them back to to their faces as it were via the medium they're almost um ambivalent about this they almost take joy like the book deserves a read but basically they are very unhelpful there is no apology there is no are oh, you looked in the wrong place there's there's a whole load of sort of um platitudes given out like oh we do this for your own good and, and etc and when i Just read mis- mischievously vindictive in a way. mischievously vindictive that is a great way to put it and that to me feels very much like what we're seeing in those Enfield poltergeist tapes and the the conclusion so the the author says you know you must draw your own conclusion about what really happened i am just giving you the 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 evidence with which you can sort of dissect for your own means and to me it feels like it would be incredibly difficult for those girls to do this as a as a prank as a stunt to to particularly gross and playfair who are not idiots despite what some books would sort of like oh they wanted to believe they didn't really they were there doing an objective thing but i think why you can come out of this going oh she made it up or no it's completely real is because if you don't consider this third way that there is this malevolent trickster who is getting involved and is genuinely making he's manipulating everybody it is manipulating everybody in the story and it's it's having fun with well and also as you're talking it i'm thinking god so that the third way in a way is this this thing has basically set up the girls yes to to be questioned yes to to live with this it's just they're making it up yes yes that's exactly right yes because um everything that he says very much like the hungry ghosts it's 
it's largely it's largely true and then he comes out with this stuff so i think mm. like one of the most fascinating bits is him deciding to sing in italian from a max bygrave record that one of janet's friends owns like that is deeply if it if it was janet that's deeply weird like there's a whole load of plan i'm not saying a 14 year old child couldn't do that but there is a yeah. whole lot of planning that goes into oh okay i think the next story for fred uh or bill rather i should say the next story for bill is that i'm going to learn this song in italian by max bygraves and sing it at a researcher like it's not although, impossible although to be honest when you were talking about it because it's interesting this theory this this third way that you're talking about because i was trying to listen during that part going right put your skeptical brain into gear here um and what i thought about when you talked about them singing in italian was and certainly in the kind of mid to late 70s through horror films singing or chanting in italian is almost a horror movie trope right okay yeah that is true that and that was coming to my mind and if you were taking a skeptic view you know the girls might have known that and thought yeah there are i need to perform oh italian well, do you know any italian oh there's that, that record that so-and-so listens to all the time that okay sings. yeah that's a really good that point. was going yeah. through my mind yeah that is a very good point yeah it's funny during that whole section when you were describing it uh the the you know the description of babies coming out of you know bottoms and but then going into you know obscene swear words i did think well that that does feel like quite you know prepubescent or or early teen behavior in some way where you kind of you you know that foul language but you don't quite understand how everything works yet yeah so i was listening to that whole section going well that that says to me that either consciously or subconsciously something's happening with with the girls expressing themselves or or, or playing into it but i think your third way theory or idea is really fascinating that in some way like in your the story of that book that you, the other book that you talked about that it could be a spirit or a poltergeist almost playing on that you know so playing a role the, the ghost or the poltergeist is playing a role to confuse things and throw things up in the air metaphorically not literally you know what i mean yes um yes i, I and and what i would add to that is like if we go back to that list of uh phenomena that were observed and only three of them weren't observed by uh playfair and gross one of the ones that wasn't was the um apparition both partial and total as is listed in their notes now i didn't bring it up in the book because it's um it's a it, it's a a lengthy uh passage of recording and this only comes up as part of it but one of the things that hardly anybody has mentioned is there is a moment where a, um an investigator who isn't associated with um gross or playfair and isn't associated with a newspaper he 
is in the house and he hears noises, sees some things moving, looks upstairs and Janet is on the stairs laughing at him or at the top of the stairs laughing at him. And then he turns around and Janet is outside. And this is where we have the most powerful apparition of the whole thing. So Janet is seen in two places at once. And that is something that the girls can't uh, fake. And so the only explanation for that is, you know, lying. And uh, like, yes, you can't discount that, but or hallucination for sure. Yeah. But yeah. The, the other thing that is coming to in my mind a lot, and we've we've mentioned Jeff in Jeff the Talking Mongoose in a different context, and and uh, and if if you haven't heard that episode, anyone listening, go and listen to the interview that we did with Christopher Joseph because it is, I mean, the Jeff the Talking Mongoose story is an amazing story, and that interview, you know, Christopher's really interesting guy as well. But there was something that he said when we interviewed him about the Jeff case that the family in some way he thought may have faked or pretended stuff was going on at certain times because they felt this pressure for the thing to happen that was going on. And I did think that at points while you were talking that... I thought that was going to be your third way, actually, that there was some weird stuff going on, but there probably was a bit of exaggeration and playfulness at the same time. So it's, well, which could tie in to also what you're saying, because that also could be driven by, you know, a spirit egging them on to do something. Yes. Well, funnily enough, that, it does come up so there is for example evidence that um janet admitted to pranking journalists and there are some people and it isn't really documented some people say that um gross and playfair compelled the girls to retract that because they felt it would undermine the rest of it and that is that's sort of like your hybrid model of there is yeah. some paranormal activity here, but if someone is going to come and spend the night observing your house and you are Janet and the whole phenomena surrounds you, you feel that pressure. So if if it if it doesn't turn up, you have to do it. Yeah, and that uh, and a bit of that came out uh, again. We mentioned it last week. The 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 episode we did on Houdini and the three Fox sisters. Mm-hmm. And the pressure that they felt to show, you know, whatever your view of the Fox sisters, that they felt this pressure to perform as well, even to the to the extent of writing an apology letter to that, you know, by one of the sisters about the whole thing. So you can see how that pressure, especially if you're a young child could affect you let alone whether anything else weird is going on or not right yeah that is true and like there are other times where gross admits that he'd observed janet for example banging a broom handle on the ceiling and hiding his tape recorder and even bending spoons but i've like that 
is kind of separate to the the raw data if you like so so this book is trying to present the raw data the fact like i do understand and i know a lot of people will call out that is that is raw data that um gross saw her doing that but that is a very specific part of the explanation it doesn't it doesn't begin to explain all the other stuff that happened um and and that is where you kind of get this like i i'm i'm inclined to go down if you have this trickster spirit and i'm going to use that term because i think that is probably yeah. the best way of putting it it's almost pan like and if that is compelling things to happen in the house it could also be compelling janet to do things yeah. like bang on the roof with a broom handle just to piss off gross just to be that yeah. more enigmatic like if you can have a lego brick come out of nowhere and hit a policeman on the head and the policeman swears on their career as they did that that was not thrown by anybody at the same yeah. time you've got a child bashing the roof going yeah i'm doing this and you've got an investigator yeah. going yeah she did it it undermines the case for anything and yeah. and, and that complexity doesn't suit anybody's position does it if you're a no. skeptic you know the confusion of the you know that's a great example that you gave there it's hard to square away the lego brick with the banging deliberate banging on the roof because it complicates your argument as a skeptic the lego brick yes on the other hand if you're a believer the banging on the roof you do feel that you have to have some explanation of why that might go on. So, and and it doesn't suit films or books or any of that stuff to to show both sides of it, does it? Which I think is interesting by going through this story and the tapes themselves or the and, transcripts themselves. And it doesn't it it doesn't fit any narrative. I think this is my point. It doesn't fit any narrative to say we're channeling a liar like yeah. the the assumption always really is that if we're getting sort of messages from beyond then we can trust them they have our best interests at heart yeah. like that that hungry ghost book they call themselves spirit guides they say they're doing this for the good of the people they're interacting with now how can that be true if everything was a lie and yeah. it if if we're to believe the accounts in that book and if we're to believe the tapes here, then some things that were told are true. And th there's just enough truth to get people hooked in. And then they destroy themselves and sometimes their entire lives by trying to show that everything else is true when it absolutely isn't. And that, yeah. to me, feels like a malevolent consciousness rather than somebody bringing that upon themselves yeah and what but even if it's just simply uh what christopher was saying when we interviewed him about the jeff bit that there was some kind of pressure even if it's not a malevolent spirit exerting that pressure on them you know the problem is nuance doesn't really sell does it and doesn't sell a story you know, no, complexity no, it, it, you're doesn't right, it doesn't. Sell, no, you know, so, 
so it's almost like you know if you're a skeptic you know one bit of fruit from the poison tree it's all poison right yes, <laughs> yes. I, don't, I don't know if i've got that quite right but you know what i'm saying that's often i do know what you're saying terms. and so what so one poison bit pollutes the whole thing and on the other hand you know from a believer's point of view you have to write it off and go oh it's not poison fruit it was poisoned by the spirit not poisoned by them but there is still room for nuance in between i think yeah 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 there is there is but like another similarity between like the jeff case and this enfield case is the tantalizing physical sort of um pieces of manifestation which other people see which add credence to the story but at the same time they they sort of almost they they laugh in the face of the credibility of that person so we just heard that account of the delivery person and the cushion on the roof which is a ridiculous story like we always say like what on earth is a spirit doing putting a cushion on the roof but at the same time in the jeff story we had these peculiar paw prints in the mud witnessed by like very credible people but it feels like again it feels like the core of this is the same kind of thing it's like oh great we've got this really uh credible person coming to investigate so we'll show them these paw prints and at the same time will compel somebody to make up a little bit of a lie which undermines everything they've seen. So not only does it call into question their own abilities and the credibility of the people who are telling the story, it undermines the entire thing. And if you are that malevolent spirit, I think you are doing the equivalent of splitting your sides in laughing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I see what you're saying. Again, just back to the from a skeptic. If you put your skeptic brain into gear, yes, from from reading these transcripts, is there anything in there which you go that would never come from the mind of a twelve, thirteen year old girl? Um. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I would say that the story of the hemorrhage, like you'd have to recite that word for word, and we keep going back to the the hemorrhage. He keeps talking about the yeah. hemorrhage. Um. I think, and, and again, I'm not sure a 12 year old girl would even use that term, right? That, well, that's what that, I'm. That's that, that what I mean. That kind of medical side of it, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I think the the other thing about it is um, the way that when he starts being really weird and sexual he isn't doing it in an innocent way we've all been that age and we've all heard the playground talk but he is like i say this is we try and keep this podcast so that it's okay to listen to for most ages in a car um so i'm not going to 
go into it too much, but he he leads the investigators down to talk to talking about very uncomfortable things and he's laughing at them it literally he is laughing and it's clear through the dialogue he knows what he's talking about like there's a whole Mm. bit about um breastfeeding and he is he's using very sort of childish playground terms but he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing until he makes the researchers almost go red explain what breastfeeding is and then he laughs at them and that right. to me feels like it's almost in like the common recognized parlance of like how like demonic things as i not i use that phrase for sort of shorthand but if you watch the exorcist that is used. Yeah, that is yeah. what you know. What that is what she says in The Exorcist to make the the priest embarrassed, isn't it? And that yeah, is yeah, yeah. that's how yeah. it comes across. It isn't. It doesn't come across as a girl who is like making stuff up. Like, why would she push and push and push and push on these really? difficult to talk around topics then laugh and then go yeah well, i've got 10 dogs that chase 68 men like yeah, yes yeah. it's possible that she would but yeah. i it just feels like it's unlikely and then when you pair that like i okay so i i'm not going to say it's unlikely but okay so if we say that that is not true then how do we explain all the other physical manifestations which do appear to be true and this is where i think this is the perfect way for a spirit to behave because to this day we have um we have opposing viewpoints and i think if you met anybody in the street if you went if you did a survey even if they'd seen the sky adaptation which i did think was you know, it seemed fantastic, but I take it as what it is. It's kind of it's it's storified fact, so it's not really fact. I think the majority of people go, "Oh yeah, the girls did it." Yeah. And if you are a a, a a sort of a lower level entity that feeds off despair, imagine how Janet feels if she's been disbelieved for the last well forty years, at least forty five years. And this really happened to her when she was yeah. 10, 11, then that spirit has achieved its aim, hasn't it? That yeah. is Mich- it, mission it, accomplished. Mission accomplished, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's why, like, I'm not, I'm really not advocating for anything. But for me, when you look at the Jeff case, when you look at this, when you look at the hungry ghost thing, and and I think this is possibly the reason why people who who know what they're talking about, say don't speak to Ouija boards because you aren't speaking to who you think you're speaking to. You're speaking to something which has the opposite of your best interests at heart. Yeah, yeah. Or or even as you were talking, you know, more than one thing, pretending to be one thing. Yes, yes, I completely agree. Well, I think I told you the story of, like, the last time, I, I probably won't, 
do a Ouija board again, but you know, when I, I do sometimes get carried away and I, I do it not from the spirit of oh God, sorry, another pun. I do it not from the position of believing it. I do it from the position of, I want to feel that thing moving under my finger so that I understand so that I can at least know in my own mind, whether it's real or not. And, uh, I'd done one of those commercial ghost hunting things. I think I've spoken about this before. And the Ouija board spelled out uh, the, the pet name of my friend who was there that her grandmother gave her when she was alive, but my friend wasn't on the Ouija board. I didn't know what that name was. Certainly all the strangers in the room didn't know what that name was. Then when I called her into the room where we were and said this this spirit on the Ouija board wants to talk to you and I convinced her to ask a question of it the answer she gave the answer sorry that the board gave made her go white and she said that is not my grandmother that is something making it up because the answer it gave was like a knowing opposite to what she knew that her grandmother would say and again it felt like there was something there like we were in a house in Gloucestershire and yet this was pretending this spirit that was coming through was supposedly an Australian woman who died 10 years ago why is an Australian woman who lived in Australia coming through a Ouija board in a supposedly haunted house in Gloucestershire and in my mind it's because it wasn't it was something that was able to uh cognize something you know almost read minds and and i will say that in the sum up of uh this case um of the enfield poltergeist case richard gross who did a lot of this um conversation with the the spirit he says in his final observations he believed there was no physical explanation for the voice and that Janet produced over an extended period of time um, a mind-reading capability. And so what? that's quite mixed up because he's saying there's no physical explanation, and yet he's sort of attributing this to, to Janet and her mind-reading abilities. And I think that says something about him as an investigative researcher. What he's saying is, I'm not in any way at this moment in time going to attribute this to a spirit. I'm going to keep pushing it back to Janet. But what he's inadvertently done is imbue Janet with the supernatural power of mind reading because he says there wasn't the, she didn't have the ability to know some of the things that were said. So whichever way you look at it, there is something going on here, which you can, you can say, this is 95% fake and you can say this is 95% real. I think it, you're quite right. It is difficult to say it's hundred percent fake or real unless, unless you take the leap that there was something going on there. Even his summing up is like that, isn't it? Cause you sit there yes. and think you go, well, either he's completely, the most independent person in the world investigating this or if he is a believer in this stuff that's him showing doubt but then again the second part of the statement like you say is saying some supernatural ability so even that statement seems to sum up the whole story to me 
Yes, yes. And but that that is absolutely the modus operandi of these things. If you think back to Jeff and the fact that he would go and tell the family stories about other people in the village that turned out to be true. And at the same time, he would make up fibs so massive that he would convince people, you know, to turn up with cameras when he wasn't going to be present. It's the same. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's like there's enough yeah. truth there to make people passionate about it and go, "Oh, do you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna be there." It's almost the opposite way round of the Cottingley Fairies, um, yeah. with uh, you know, convincing very uh, impressive and big people that that those things are real, but actually they're completely made up. It's it's like it's the inverse of that. It's the positive to that's negative. And that is where I think this comes from. And that's why I think this is like such a dangerous and like it feels like it's a malevolent thing. But like the yeah. gr the greatest mystery of it is uh, what is it? What is yeah. this poltergeist? What is Jeff? What are those yeah. things? Which universe, which parallel are they coming from because there is like i even though i sit down the center of the road until yeah i still feel there is something there that is such beyond understanding it's it's so weird yeah it's almost like these these spirits are mischievous divas is what i'm getting from it Just yeah you know what i mean <laughs> slightly but I think what's interesting, in, again, in your third way analysis is stereotypically you kind of go, well, Polskeist is a bit mischievous. but Or they're, they're completely demonic, as the, the word that you didn't want to use earlier. And it's yeah. like, yeah, it is maybe a bit more complex than that, even if you go from a non-sceptic point of view, that these things are you know almost almost malicious but in malicious i think i used it earlier mischievously malicious is probably yes. a good description of what we're talking about yes i think that yeah. i think that's exactly right yeah yeah because i mean poltergeist does mean noisy ghost in german but obviously that is referring to the fact that they tend to break stuff and throw things around and you know that is true of the the enfield poltergeist but yeah. rarely do you find a case where these peculiar voices voice comes through these these truths i mean we do get cases where they you know write on uh, pieces of paper and leave messages around and stuff like that and you can only speculate because we don't know any more and we don't have any unified theory on how these things come together. But it just feels like, like again, it's something just messing around. And it, it, you don't even know what mental age it has, assuming it's a consciousness. If it has the consciousness of a 12-year-old, a but the power of omnipotence, then it is going to make jokes about men's willies and at the same time throw people out of their beds i mean that is that is what it will do yeah definitely well we will um we always do a photo album that goes with our podcast 
Um, we'll put uh, links in there to the books that Ben's referenced today so you can go and check them out. But this is such a, you know, everybody's either seen a film, read a book or pretty much knows the basis of this story. So we'd love to know what you think out there about what went on, whether it's uh, whether it's a sceptical view, a believer's view or you know, the third way view that we've been talking about or your own third way view, we'd really love to know because I, I I don't think I'm any clearer, which I don't think is a bad thing, but I, I don't think no. I'm... I, I think I'm probably... I almost came at this when you mentioned it. I, I think I almost started with a sceptical view of, yeah, well, it was just the girls, wasn't it? But I think from what you've talked about today, it, it, I think your third way is really interesting really interesting that it, it it's almost doing them a disservice to jump one side or the other i think yeah well i would say if you are thinking of jumping one side or the other and i absolutely was like i will genuinely come out and say i had sort of assumed it was the girls because perhaps that's the most comfortable way of feeling about this but this book really made me think again and it is very independent dr melvin willin the enfield poltergeist tapes available from whitecrowbooks.com whitecrowbooks.com and i got my copy of amazon it is a thoroughly fascinating read he's done a great job in um sort of laying these tapes out and like i say there's no editorialization just read what the people on the ground recorded and what they said in their reports and then see what you think. Brilliant. Okay, well, make sure you, make sure you let us know what you think, we, we, especially on this one, because I think it's been, it's been fascinating. And it, it, the good thing about it, it is a case that most people know about it. But I think, you know, Ben, you definitely brought a different angle to it, which I think is really refreshing. So it's great. Well, I love poltergeists almost as much as I love werewolves. And uh, if anyone also has got any were uh, werewolf, any poltergeist stories that um, they want to tell us about, please do tell us. And as we always say, it really, really helps if you can tell a friend about this podcast. If you've got somebody who thinks the opposite way to you about the Enfield poltergeist, maybe share this episode with them have a conversation about it. Let us know where it comes out. These things are all intended to start conversations and start debates. We're not trying to tell you anything is real or not real. It's just the whole fascination of the stories and what's going on. So as the pubs in the UK open, as we broadcast this, oh, they'll have been open a week and when we broadcast this, take somebody down the pub, sit outside in the cold, and have a debate about the Enfield Poltergeist <laughs> and in 120 words, tell us where you fell out on it and uh, that would be super interesting. Excellent. Well, we will see you hopefully with those stories next time on The Quantum Mechanics. See you next time. Quantum mechanics.